Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome back to The Other People Show, or welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. Today on the program, my guest is Chantal V. Johnson, author of the debut novel, Post Traumatic. But that craft question was incredibly important to me because I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste this material. It's like, this is, I, I, I've learned a lot and I have lots that I would like to share, but I don't want to waste this by producing something that is not almost like worthy of the experience. Okay, that was Chantal V. Johnson talking about her debut novel, Post Traumatic, available now from Little Brown. Post Traumatic explores the life and relationships of a character named Vivian, a black and Latinx woman in her 30s, an aspiring writer who works by day as an attorney advocating for patients in a New York psychiatric hospital. Vivian is the survivor of abuse, childhood abuse, and in the pages of Post Traumatic, Vivian's seemingly stable and successful young adult life is upended by the lingering effects of trauma and the destabilizing impact of uh, family estrangement. It is also a very funny book, oftentimes. It's a very original, strikingly accomplished debut novel. It's a book of real psychological insight that has so much to say about the aforementioned themes, as well as themes surrounding friendship and feminism, body issues, so much. I loved reading it, and I loved talking with Chantal V. Johnson. She is a real talent, and that conversation is coming up momentarily. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Books, publisher of the novel Aurora by David Capp, soon to be a major motion picture from Netflix and Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow. Stephen King calls Aurora, quote, impossible to put down. In Aurora, we meet Aubrey Wheeler, resident of Aurora, Illinois. Aubrey, she's just trying to get by after her semi-criminal ex-husband splits town, leaving behind his unruly teenage son. Then the lights go out, not just in Aurora, but across the globe. A solar storm has knocked out power almost everywhere, and suddenly all problems are very local. Aubrey has to assume the mantle of fierce protector of her suburban neighborhood, while across the country, her estranged brother Tom, a fantastically wealthy, neurotically overprepared Silicon Valley CEO, has made plans to ride out the crisis in a gilded desert bunker. So the complicated history between siblings must be reconciled, and what feels like the end of the world is just the beginning of several long overdue reckonings, which not everybody will survive. That's Aurora, the new novel by David Kep, available from Harper Books. All right, so I'm a little under the weather. I've got this like throat, chest cold thing going. So if my voice sounds a little bit deeper than usual, that's why. Just kind of trying to power through it. So I really am excited about today's episode and today's guest, Chantal V. Johnson. Her debut novel, Post Traumatic, was an absolute delight to read. And it is available now from Little Brown. I feel like this book heralds the arrival of a very important writer. I think this. I think Chantal has a lot to say, and I think that there is a real deftness with which she handles very delicate material and makes some beautiful art out of it. And I just salute her for that. It's just a wonderful book and a wonderful conversation that I'm happy to share with you right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chantal V. Johnson, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Post Traumatic. The first thing that I think of is the way that a post-traumatic consciousness is endlessly creative. And that is not, that's not always a good thing. But there is a constant, and I, I identify as someone who has a post-traumatic mind. So I'm speaking from my own experience. There is a constant generation of possibilities that often revolve around risk, for instance, imagining risk where imagining danger where it is not, but also perceiving danger where it is. So there can be heightened critical faculties, but those critical faculties can also go awry when the brain is hijacked by cortisol and adrenaline. I would say post-traumatic humor is incredibly important to me, particularly gallows humor. Um, And the gallows humor of anyone who has survived anything gruesome, grisly, has encountered evil, if one is able to survive atrocity and make jokes about it, that that feels profoundly aesthetic, but also deeply philosophical and wise. Um, I don't think I don't think everybody because I share that with you. I love gallows humor. Sure. I, I rely very much on humor of all stripes. 
And yet, I feel like some people have a narrower idea of it. I think maybe in particular when the jokes are grim or too dark or rooted in some grim experience, they, they're not in the mood for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, have you ever mm-hmm. run up against that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, mostly the the response to my book has been pretty positive, but there's definitely been some uh, apprehension, some distancing from the humor in particular. You know, this kind of like, ooh, I don't know if, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I should. Should I be laughing at that? Like, should she be saying that? Can she say that? You know, there's a there's a kind of like, I don't know if I have permission to, I don't know if she has permission to, this is a third rail issue. So I just, I can't talk about this book anymore. You know, there is this kind of exasperation um, with that. And that's something that I'm really interested in and kind of interested in, you know, provoking. I think the other thing I'll say about the post-traumatic mind is, I don't know, I, I feel that I am very aware of the absurdity of, of life and that I, because my life has been so richly textured and tonally strange and, and, and different, like just such dramatic highs and lows, I feel open and receptive to just a wide variety of aesthetic experiences because just the, the tone of my life has been so varied. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think the, the human being in me is like, well, what, what do you mean? You know, what are these highs and these lows? Uh, you know, like I know that you went to Stanford. Would you go to Stanford law school? I did. I you're, did. A, you're an attorney. I guess these might be considered highs. Stanford Law School feels like a high to me. But I know and I can glean from your book that you've also experienced a lot of trauma, I think in particular as a child. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. Okay. It is accurate. I do think that my perspective is unique and... It does give me a kind of, it gives people a kind of knowledge, but you have to tap into that knowledge and you, and you have to be reflective. You mean right? trauma gives people a kind of knowledge? No, I think the, the, the just the, the, the kind of, well, trauma can give people a kind of knowledge, but again, they have to get to a point psychologically where they are able to receive that knowledge because many people get so traumatized that they can't, you know, they, they, they stay locked in, in a space that's not reflective, in a space where executive function isn't possible. You know, I mean, they end up, they end up in a psych ward, they end up on the street, they end up addicted, you know, they end up ending their lives. Those of us who don't end up that way if we can get better, you know, if we can, if we can try to find a way to move beyond the programming of the childhood years, I think there's a lot of capacity for, for knowledge, real knowledge about things like, about the most serious things in, in the universe, you know, such as the nature of evil and the nature of goodness. I think about that a lot. Like, are people, are, I guess the question I often ask myself is, are there some people who are inherently evil and where my mind always goes back to is this article i read in the atlantic uh a few years ago about 
psychopathology in children <laughs> and how there are psychopathic kids and parents who are at their wits end because these kids are like trying to kill their siblings and doing horrendous things. And they're just like out of the box mean and completely uncaring for the feelings and well-being of others. And it chilled me because I was just like, oh, mm -hmm. my God, like maybe there's it. Maybe some people are just what do they call it? You know, you born born with a bad wiring, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I assume that evil people are like snowflakes, right? There's just so many different kinds of, you know, some people are made that way. Some people are born that way. I think the questions that interest me more are what 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 do we do with those people? I don't know. But I'm interested in that from a kind of justice perspective. I'm also interested in kind of like collaboration with evil is actually something that I'm particularly interested in, particularly when it comes to something like child abuse. What do you mean by that? Well, I think something that I'm thinking about a lot now is that I feel strongly that it is impossible to remain in an evil or abusive institution without being stained by the evil. And the reason I think that is because, I mean, if you take an abusive family, for instance, there are, there are usually people who, who knew or know. It is, it, is, it is not often the case, at least in, in a lot of the stuff I've read about families, it is not often the case that nobody knew. It is often the case that at least one adult knew. Yet, the abuse continues. Why? And we see that not only in families, but we see it in schools and institutions and, and, and countries and governments, right? But the family is easiest for me because it's a small, discrete social unit. And it's a one that I have direct experience in. Um, and it seems kind of more manageable to study and think about, you know, well, how could this, how could this be? And the reality is that abuse benefits people. And so one thing that happens is people collaborate with abuse because they don't want to be abused. If a child is being singled out in a family, sometimes you'll have the other siblings allowing it because they don't want to be targeted, right? And if they're children, that's potentially excusable. You know, if they're adults, is that excusable? I don't think so, no. <laughs> but we, but we, but we see that. Right. And so the cult, like it's just abuse happens in part because everybody becomes kind of ensnared in this toxic system of being forced to make these horrible decisions of like protecting themselves. Right. Because people don't want to suffer and people don't want to be abused. And so are those people evil? Are if you if you collaborate with evil, are you evil? Um, I don't know, but I think that's a very interesting question for me. And as someone with a social conscience, um, I would say that question that my obsession with not wanting to collaborate with evil has has driven a lot of the choices that I've made in 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 my career. So your book, which I loved is I guess a work of autofiction. You share some things in common with Vivian, who is a lawyer, a tenant lawyer? 
she works at a psychiatric hospital. And you're a but, tenant but lawyer. But I was a tenant lawyer for seven years. Okay. And I, that, that's not the same thing. No. Okay. No. Okay. So I represented tenants who were being evicted from their apartments right. in New York. Vivian represents um, people who are in a psychiatric hospital who are trying to get out of the hospital or they're just trying to avoid being forcibly medicated. Okay. And you never did that kind of legal work yourself. I did do that as a law student. So I was, I was an extern. Okay. <laughs> I didn't okay. do it as an actual lawyer. It felt lived in, you know, it just felt, you know, as rendered on the page, I was like, wow, this is really believable to a degree that makes me think that, uh, Chantal has done this. But, uh, what I found so wonderful about the character Vivian in this work that she does is how deeply she identifies with her clients. Mm -hmm. uh, she is truly their advocate to a degree that I think exceeds maybe the typical person in her role. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. It, especially in that, in that context. Um, I do believe that some of the people who work as advocates in that system are actually collaborating with evil. <laughs> I mean, you know, it brings up interesting moral, I mean, we're talking about in, really interesting moral quandaries here, but I think about it when it comes to like the homelessness crisis. I live in Los Angeles, so we have a big problem here with people being unhoused and people needing care and housing. And I, like, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with friends and neighbors about like what to do. And it is not an easy answer, but I do feel like at some part of it has to involve like very serious mental health care. Cause a lot of the people who are unhoused are dealing with like really serious mental illness. But then I read your book, and you've got people who are in this psychiatric hospital who are institutionalized. And Vivian is so squarely in their corner wanting to get them out. And if I'm being honest, there are times in Los Angeles where I'm confronted with somebody who's really unwell and thinking like, we've got to get them in. You know, like they can't just continue like this. This is inhumane. You know, it's like, I don't know. So I just find myself, I guess, confused about what, what's right uh, yeah, I think that's really valid. I mean, I think for me, one thing that the lawyer identity has done when I've been in those situations as an advocate is it kind of streamlines and clarifies my mission because it's bound by my profession and it's bound by, it's just very limited. It's a limited form of advocacy to work in a psychiatric hospital and just have this basic belief that someone has a liberty interest an interest in liberty that overrides them being detained here in a place where they're not actually receiving therapeutic care. Because I, I, I worked or volunteered in an acute care public hospital that accepted people without insurance, people on, on, on Medicaid and Medicare, many of whom were homeless, but they still were entitled to good mental health care that they were not getting in that acute setting. What they were getting was being forcibly medicated. They were not dealing with the root causes of their trauma and issues. And so as the lawyer, my job was just to kind of look at the case, see if the hospital had met the basic legal standard of, have you demonstrated that this person is a risk to themselves or others, or are they just homeless? If they're just homeless and they're yelling at someone, but they're not actually threatening anyone, unfortunately, the law does not allow you to keep them here. And the rest is public policy and governmental interventions that need to happen, right? So as a lawyer, I wasn't, as a, as a citizen, I'm thinking about all of that stuff. 
But as a lawyer, my, my job was very discreet. And there's a beauty to that. <laughs> you yes, know? yes. It limits because it, it really just limits my role. And it helps it helps you move through life, right? If you have that kind of narrow scope of your advocacy. Yeah, no, like, like it limits your responsibility too, because these things can, these things can get unwieldy very quickly. It's like, well, if they're not here, where are they going to be? And if we're sending them back out into the streets, is that more unsafe than they would be here? And it's not easy work, right? I have to imagine it's emotionally challenging. Very emotionally challenging. I mean, I when I went to law school, I went to law school specifically to do that kind of mental health advocacy. That's actually what I wanted to do with with my life. I mean, I wanted to write novels as well, but I I became kind of radicalized in this mental health. I just had a radical mental health politics, and I was just like free everyone, you know, except for some small percentage of people, um, because you're not helping them. Wait, 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 where did this radical mental health politics come from? Can you trace it? I think part of it was personal. My father was paranoid schizophrenic and ended up homeless. And my family's response was pretty bad. We had no idea what we were dealing with with him and just did not. We were not equipped. And I don't think our society was equipped to to deal with with something like that. We're still not. But definitely in the mid 90s, there was no... There was no language to deal with that. And I was a kid and I was just like, oh, he's crazy and weird. I don't want to be around him, you know. And so I certainly rejected him. My family definitely rejected him. And I just kind of watched him. I mean, we lost contact, but I just kind of watched him become a transient, you know, and just a a lost person. And that was heartbreaking because... My father actually was one of the only adults in my life who was not abusive. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was like, well, that's, that's a shame, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's now another loss that I have to deal with, you know, actually like a really sweet caregiver is gone mm. and lost, lost in this tragic way to, to mental illness that we, we just didn't know how to deal with. I don't know where it came from and, and you know, uh, and so certainly part of it was, was just like that though, I think it's only recently that I'm admitting that to myself. I mean, I think at the time I just, I believed that I just had these political beliefs that had nothing to do with me uh-huh. <laughs> or, or my family. Isn't it, know? isn't it wild how we can do that to ourselves? Yes. Yes. It's amazing. I feel yes. the same way. Like I, especially when you write about it. Yeah. And I think, I think trauma was the other thing. Again, I was not thinking about myself consciously, but I was seeing all of these people many people with mental illness that I would encounter who had clear trauma histories, who had clear histories of, you know, if not abuse, then the the trauma of poverty, the trauma of growing up in the shadow of parents' addictions and stuff like that, just a lot of suffering. And so if suffering leads in many cases to serious mental health issues, why are we not trying to to get to the bottom of people's suffering? Why are we just doping them up with medications that fundamentally change their bodies and make them gain a lot of weight and turn them into zombies? Are we just turning people into zombies and doping them up so that they won't leave the house so that we don't have to look at them? So we don't want to look at them. So our society just abuses people and 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 and, and forces them to live in poverty. And then when they start acting out their pain, we just drug them up and hide them? That that's horrible. How, how are we doing that? Right. And why? And, and why? And, and further, like, why is everyone believing all these pharmaceutical companies who are literally inventing 
new hyper-specific kinds of suffering that only they have the cure for. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm, I think, I think there's a conspiracy here. <laughs> probably has, and it probably has something to do with making lots and lots of money. Capitalism is involved. Right. <laughs> you know, like you all think that this is just our brains, but, but no, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of what seemed to me to be the whole very dangerous charade of what my character calls like a purely biomedical conceptualization of mental illness. It's like, that's so convenient, you know, all these psychiatrists making all this money off of you and all these pharmaceutical companies making all this money off of, off of you and your suffering. They don't make money if you're well. Exactly. Exactly. Or if you find ways of getting well that don't involve the products that they're selling you. So I, I, you know, I felt I was radicalized, you know, and I was just like, this is, this is bad. You know, I have to, I have to stop this. Um, and so, and so I worked, uh, when I was in my third year of law school, everything that I did in law school was like mental health related, basically. Like I, I worked at a, I volunteered at a veterans hospital, just hung out with vets. And I worked at the mental hygiene legal service in New York, which is like in New York, you do have a constitutional right to an attorney if you are hospitalized. So the same way that if you're in jail, right, you get access to a public defender. So I worked for them for like six months in an externship. And I wanted to work for them after law school. But after law school, there was a hiring freeze, they weren't hiring anyone. And so I just ended up I ended up practicing tenant law, because that's where the jobs were. And then I fell in love with with that. And that was great. It's a totally different context, but it just kind of it just kind of happened. It was like, well, the jobs aren't there, but now there's this new right to counsel in New York for tenants who are being evicted. There's tons of jobs there. I'll do that. I fell in love with that. And that's what I did for the past seven years. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, let's talk some more about trauma and in particular about trauma as it relates to literature. You know, if you have some sort of traumatic 
lived experience that you're trying to render in a work of literature, trying to get a sense of how to tell the story, trying to get a sense of authority and self-permission to tell it and to forge a path that feels right to you, that doesn't feel too self-indulgent or... I don't know. Do you see what I'm getting at? There are present- yeah, for sure. There's there's definitely craft and aesthetic challenges when you're dealing with extreme experience, any extreme experience. And the question for me is, how do I make this more than a diary? Right. This is this is this is not a diary. This is not a polemic. This is not a confession to my best friend. This is not a stump speech. Like, what is this? Right. Like, it's a work of art. So then, how do you artify this? That, that that became the challenge. And that was years of work because first I had to process it. Like I, I did not produce a work of art that is based on unprocessed thoughts and feelings and experiences. I had to thoroughly process what had happened to me before I could aestheticize it because I needed the, I needed the, the distance. You know, I need to be able to sit there and think about, okay, like, what are these bad things that happened to me without being flooded with overwhelming panic and shame? Or, as you do in your book, if I am being flooded with those things, I needed to have the ability to describe those things. I needed to have access to the 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 reflecting, the noticing, you know, um, because for a long time there was no noticing. I could not notice. It was just all experience, all being flooded with, with adrenaline and cortisol and, and, and shame and fear and anxiety. And there's no, there's no language in that. There's no possibility for language in that. So I had to get to a place psychologically through tons of therapy. Ooh, so much therapy and various, you know, healing practices <laughs> like meditation and stuff like that and, and somatic just exercise and yoga and stuff like that. Things that are focused on embodiment getting me back into the body and inhabiting my body again before I was able to think about the craft question. But that craft question was incredibly important to me because I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste this material. It's like, this is, I, I, I've learned a lot and I have lots that I would like to share, but I don't want to waste this by producing something that is not almost like worthy of the experience. I relate to everything you just said, you know, the, the ways of healing, the needing to get that critical distance and get to a place where you could aestheticize. And I get to like this sentiment about not wanting to uh, fail the, the material or fail the experiences when you're trying to render them in a work of art, you know, to do them justice. Uh, you know, that's, that's the challenge. And that's also a lot of the creative fear, you know, is to put it into a book and then have it fall flat <laughs> right? or have people go like you, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, especially when it's so personal. Yeah. Especially when it's so personal. And I mean, and it does feel like this book is an agitprop. It's not at all, but it does feel like, like for me, the, the abuse of children is a political issue. Mm. And, and, and I'm thinking about, like a world of survivors that I know and I'm thinking about being accountable to those people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the victims and survivors who've shared their stories with me my entire life. I've been collecting these stories since I was like seven years old 
you know. What do you mean? Like you talk at your seven years old and you're talking to people who have been abused? Yes. So, you know, I'm going to be personal with you, Brad, because I've been listening to your podcast for 10 years. <laughs> and, Please. Uh, and, and, and I feel, I feel that we can have an authentic human exchange. So I, you know, I grew up for a time in a household that was very violent when I was a kid and it was physically violent. It was sexually violent. It was sadistic and humiliating from a very early age. I knew that I was hated and despised as a child for reasons that were a mystery to me. I had no idea. Like, wow, you really hate me. I'm really bad to you. You think that about me. Eventually, I escaped that situation. And one of the first things that I did was start telling little girls what I had experienced. And the first time I did that, I remember it was was at night. It was like on my stoop. And I had just moved to a new town and made some new girlfriends. And I told them about about the, the violent situation that we had just escaped. And no one made any admissions to me that night. But later, when I would tell the story to other little girls, they started saying to me that they had experienced something similar. And I have a horrible memory in a lot of ways, but I remember every single abuse admission that I have ever heard in my entire life. I, and I, and I felt like I was, I was collecting. I felt like I was even from a kid. I just felt like I had this knowledge of the world. That was this secret knowledge of, of these things that are happening to little kids. And it made me feel part of something bigger than myself, which was great for me. Um, that's a wonderful way to move, to start the process of moving beyond, to start the process of contextualizing and later politicizing what has happened to you, um, while also kind of minimizing the significance of what happened to you, like making it less personal, right? Because it becomes something that happens to more people. Um, and so you have this sense of connectedness with other people who are all bound by this thing. And a lot of this book comes out of that collection of stories. You know, it's like I had been taking in all of your stories for all of this time. And now I have to give it back to everyone. And I have to make sure that I do it in a way that is aesthetically interesting, maybe philosophically interesting, not self-pitying, not overly sentimental. The language has to be right, like no haunting, no ghosts, no wounds, no ravages, no scars, none of that. Just like <laughs> horrible, you know, like the only scars that my character has are like literal scars on her body, right? She's not like haunted by the scars of the ravages of the wounds of her <laughs> traumatic past. Like, stop. Can we stop yeah. with that language? So I did, I felt this sense of like obligation to, to survivors that I had known throughout my entire life. Well, it's interesting as you talk, I'm thinking of like the phrase that occurred to me was collecting testimony, which squares, mm. with, squares with your lawyerly uh, profession, yeah. you know, professional life. And then the other thing that strikes me is how as a child, your inclination was to disclose. 
Yes. Not a lot of children or, you know, at least from what I gather personally and from the culture, like a lot of children don't disclose. Mm-hmm. Something like this happens and they lock it away, you know, because they don't have language for it or they they feel shame around it or fear. You know, a lot of times there's fear about what will happen if they do disclose. They don't want to disrupt their family structure or get a parent or family member into legal trouble, you know, this kind of thing. And you took the opposite tack. You were ready to talk right away. That's interesting to me. Yeah. And to be clear, it wasn't talking right away. It was talking like after you know, but I, I think about that a lot when I think about my, my, myself and my, and my personality, which is something that I like personality and temperament is something that I really believe in. And as someone who experienced a lot of violence and abuse in my life, I have often questioned and wondered like, what is authentically me? Like, what am I? Is everything just a response to that? Like what's, what's me? But that, those moments of telling, that feels like that's me, <laughs> you know, like that is me. Because like you said, not everybody does that. So that's, that's me, right? That's me there. And the other thing that feels like me, which is in the book, is this kind of defiant streak. I mean, I was at times pretty openly defiant to people who were abusing me. That was not good for me, but I did it anyway. Hmm. And that feels like that's me. <laughs> you know? I hear you. Though. It's, a, it's, a way of re, it's a way of asserting yourself and taking your power, you know, and not being a completely passive uh, victim or somebody who's experiencing these things. It's a way of taking some control. Yeah. And it's not to, it's not by any means to denigrate any child or any person who does not respond that way. But it's just, I just want to be clear on that, you know, like it's, it's stupid in a way to, to do some of the things that I did because there's, those things were very dangerous, but it feels like it's me because it's like, that has to be me because why would you do that unless you had to do that? Because it's just you. Mm. <laughs> right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to, because I think some people listening might be in a similar situation of one kind or another, trying to figure out an aesthetic way forward that meets these marks and makes sense to them creatively. I read that you sought like a new path, you know, talking about trauma. There are particular aesthetic choices that you made in your novel. Uh, For example, you don't extensively get into the details of the abuse. Uh, I could kind of feel it. It's weird as a you kind of play with the expectations of the reader in that way, because I think we've been conditioned to sort of expect that revelation in the third act. And you give us enough to make it hit home emotionally, but you don't get into the granular details of it. And you also don't center the perpetrator, really, in the story. Can you just talk about those choices and why you made them? 
it's hard to describe the writing process in a way that feels true. I I do think that not describing abuse extensively was a conscious choice. Part of that was because I was interested in kind of the the sneakier unknown to oneself ways that trauma leaks out in ways that are not flashbacks like in ways that are not literal memory flashbacks and memory intrusions and that is a that's one of the dominant like psychological ways that we talk about trauma. It's also one of the dominant aesthetic ways that we write about trauma. And I was interested in lesser known, like non-canonical kind of like, just not largely discussed trauma symptoms that are not direct flashbacks. And so having those in the story wouldn't make sense within my artistic vision, which was about trying to document a set of symptoms that people who have experienced domestic violence, child abuse, gender-based violence experience, such as hypervigilance, shame, fear of a foreshortened future, fear of specific kinds of violent death, attachment issues, eating disorders, (laughs) inability to trust people. And none of that, when it is happening, is necessarily feeling directly linked to something that happened to you 30 years ago. I get that. I get that. You know, so the aesthetic had to match that experience. I think that's, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's more true to life. And what it makes me wonder about is if you had people in your life or if you have people in your life who have read your book and have been maybe surprised by some of the revelation in it or the revelation, the implied revelation in it. And I say this out of self-interest because, you know, I wrote a book that's, I guess, trauma-based and it gets into the details a bit of difficult lived experience But the truth is that when I look back in those years, people who know me might well have been like, well, he was fine. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? You're going through your life. You're not constantly having like a isolated, very explicit trauma flashback (laughs) where you relive in, um, you know, what's the word? Like sequential order, the scenes as they unfolded. It doesn't work like that. It it works in these kind of oblique ways. Right. A lot of times you can only see it with the benefit of hindsight. So has there been a readerly response among people who are in your life that has reflected that dissonance? Not really, because, well, one thing is that, like, this is why, I mean, I don't actually think about my book as autofiction. Everybody thinks that different ways. Everybody defines that different ways. But I think for me, because I fictionalized so much of, like, the plot, you know, like I didn't fictionalize the consciousness, um, but I did fictionalize a lot of the plot. And 
so there is a there's just a real distance. It's like I took my consciousness and then gave it to someone who had these experiences and then seats. And then so then she becomes legitimately someone else who is not me. And so I just think the percentages are different in my book, like in terms of like its its relationship to me. And then even the things that did happen to me, the sequence is all off and it did not happen like that. <laughs> and so like I might be writing about something that happened 15 years ago. You know, or like, but I'm like writing about it as if this character is in her mid 30s. But actually, this is something that happened to me in my 20s, whatever. So I don't really think about it as autofiction. And then I think, to your point, this is a this is an artwork. Our our actual experiences were very different. And and I was, and part of the point of my book is that like you're experiencing these things and you're and you're laughing and like getting high with your friends. I mean, right. that, that is what life is. Right. And it's actually really good for people who are experiencing deep, like, like depression, say, to, I think, like, it's good for mental health to recognize that that is how life is, that something horrible can happen to you. And then something literally incredibly funny can happen to you, like, while the horrible thing is happening. And, and actually, like, keeping sight of that is, like, one of the keys to my mental well-being. It, it can keep you from getting sucked down into the dark pity place of hell and despair. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it wasn't all bad. Like, even when I think about my childhood, it's like, it literally wasn't all bad. Like, it actually wasn't. There was a There was a discrete time when it was pretty bad. There were probably good times within that time. I don't remember them, you know, but... Yeah, of course. I played Nintendo. I had lots of wonderful experiences as a kid. And that, that's, part of the, that's part of the point. That's part of seeing things as they really are. The reality of most kinds of suffering is that they are interspersed with moments of not suffering. Right. I just prefer, m- much of the art that I love is, is closer to the, the, the real world. And so if you're depicting these kinds of things, I want to, there to be some leavening mechanism or just some, some, something. I think the thing that you're talking about is best embodied by the relationship between Vivian and Jane in the book. This is a female friendship, which is very much, I think, at the core of your concerns in this book, or at least one of the core concerns. They share the same gallows humor common among or often found in survivors and they're very close in a sisterly way uh and there's a lot of complexity there too you know and it gets complicated um in the book i won't spoil it too much for for listeners but you just talk a little bit about that though you know the jane character and vivian's relationship to her and maybe how friendship this particularly close female friendship has like what role it's played in your life and in your healing? Yeah, I think probably start with the second question first. I think for me, friendship was probably the first really safe, intimate relationship that I had. Uh, it's probably it's probably still the relationship that I'm best at. <laughs> I think I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good friend, and. It, it it was like the perfect amount of intimacy for me, just enough, but not too much, you know? Like I think getting into family and romantic partnership 
romantic partnership as a kind of family has been, you know, a little bit more challenging. But friendship is like just enough. So it was definitely a protected environment for me to be my authentic self. And I wanted to have that in the book, again, as a kind of lightening, brightening, leavening, letting the lair, letting some air in kind of mechanism in a book like this. And to show that those kinds of friendships that are forged between people who have experienced the same kind of or similar kinds of violence are just so, it's just so powerful to be seen by someone else and not objectified by them and not, you know, one of the first interactions that Vivian and Jane have is Vivian's making a provocative joke about her burn scars and the way that Jane responds, it's almost a test. You know, it's like, I'm going to make this really dark joke. What are you going to do? What's going to be your response? You know, are you going to like shy away? Are you going to be awkward? Are you going to feel bad for me? Are you going to look at me with anthropological or sociological curiosity? What's your response going to be? And Jane's just like, oh, that's probably like a curling iron. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, and it's just like, and it's like, oh, you're, you're studied. In, in this right, <laughs> you right. Know? like and that's and and from personal experience like when I've encountered people like that I am just like I love you I love you and I will I will disclose everything to you now well listen as you were saying that I will cop to the fact that I immediately started internally panicking thinking what is the right answer what's the right answer what do I do <laughs> I would have just, I probably would just freeze. The answer is I, probably, <laughs> I would just say nothing and be like, okay, you know. Uh, but it's, a, it's interesting because like I think for people who might not have shared, and I go through this, you know, in my little world with having a child with disabilities in particular sure. is people not knowing how to talk about it. You know, feeling their interest or their sympathy or their empathy, but not necessarily knowing what the right thing to say is. And so oftentimes they either say nothing or maybe they say something that's just like silly, you know, but... Usually they say nothing. And so I guess a question for you, just as like a practical matter, is that if there's somebody in your life who has suffered abuse and this kind of trauma, especially in their childhood, are there any tips? <laughs> I guess it's different for everybody, but you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the best way to be there for people in that situation? How can I be here for you? Because that's that's the only every individual needs different things. Right. I, I, I will, I, 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 I am a dark and demented person and I do not think <laughs> that the way that I want people to <laughs> treat me is the way that maybe anyone else does. So, you, you know what I mean? So yes. it's just, it has to be as, as with, with anything that your friends and loved ones are experiencing. How, how can I be here for you? Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. That's just uh, common sense. But you know that, Brad. I know, it's common sense, but it's like, it's like it can be easy to lose sight of it. And I think sometimes, I don't know, I can get tangled and lose sight of just simple human responses like that. Sure. And I was also, the example that I'm pointing to in my book is a very, again, it's a very specific, deranged example. You know, as opposed to someone like crying to you about like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you don't want the, but you don't want, I think as the, when you're on the receiving end of a trauma or a difficult experience, especially in the aftermath, you're probably not often in the mood for melodrama. Maybe sometimes you are, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times you're just like, oh, can we just ventilate this and just talk about it as real life? Because this is my real life. 
This isn't some like imagined horror, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm actually grappling with this on a daily basis. And so I think there is kind of a, a, a wanting to kind of keep it real, you know, and an appreciation of that when someone's able to, to do that. Speaking of keeping it real, I think maybe my favorite aspect of this book is the incredible psychological realism that you render on the page. And you mentioned earlier that you've done a lot of therapy and it makes sense to me that you would have because this is such a psychologically knowing book and in its granular details, like you really do a wonderful job of painting the interior of say, just as an example, like paranoia while smoking weed. Yes. <laughs> um, like uh, the kinds of you know, internal monologues one might have with oneself when they're on a date with somebody and they really want it to go well, like romantic desire. All of it is just rendered so acutely and so accurately. And all of these different little manifestations of her life and personality, uh, there's so much psychological realism in their rendering. And they all have, in their own ways, something to do with her relationship with her trauma. <laughs> I don't know. Am I, am I making any sense here? I, I, I mean, thank you. Thank you for all of that. So that's so lovely and, and good to hear. I think I always wanted to keep the possibility open that like, well, I think she says at the end, like <laughs> she's kind of rejecting the, ther the therapist is kind of talking about the food stuff and like trying to tie it to the trauma or something. And she's just like, no, I just want to be skinny. You know, like, so I think I did always, though I called it post-traumatic and though I keep saying in, interview, like, in interviews, like, all this stuff is related to trauma, like, theoretically, I still wanted to hold open the possibility that, like, some of that stuff is just not related to the trauma at all, well, you know, like, yeah. you know, but, 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 <laughs> and so, and so maybe it is, you know, but maybe, maybe it is related, maybe it's not, who knows, but I think I read a lot of psychology books while I was writing the book. Mm. And I, cause I wanted to get like some of the psychology accurate. I think like also for me as a person, ever since I've been, again, like ever since I was a kid, I've been reading psychology. It's like helps me contextualize life again. It helps me uh, just realize that when A happens, like B can happen or C can happen or D can happen. Like there's these different outcomes that can happen. And so if you're experiencing this, like that's like a normal response to like this thing that happened to you. It's, it's destigmatizing, it's de-shaming. It just automatically provides some psychological relief to me to know that what I'm experiencing is kind of a logical, one of the logical outcomes of what I've experienced before in my life. It's, it's completely helpful to me. And so I've always been reading psychology my entire life, trauma psychology. And again, I was thinking like, oh, I just haven't seen this in a book, like with the food stuff, with the body measuring ritual stuff. And there was a time in my life when I was engaging in these very obsessive body rituals, with like weighing myself and measuring my body, all of this stuff. And at a certain point, I mean, I blame meditation, which I haven't been doing anymore. I really need to do that again because I'll probably start writing well again. <laughs> but there was a time when I was like meditating constantly and just really like slowing down and paying attention to what I was doing in a typical day. And I was like, wow, now that I'm meditating and I'm noticing things, wow, I really like measure myself a lot. Right. 
But it was it was about like slowing down, paying attention. And then, but this is what you're doing in your book as well. You are constantly using, I'm assuming, some of the noticing tools that you have gained from years of meditation and you are incorporating them into your art. And, 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 and that's what I was, I mean, it felt like a superpower almost. And it felt like there was this kind of like, impishness of like, ooh, I'm gonna, ooh, I'm gonna show this. <laughs> you know, like, I'm gonna reveal this. Ooh, ooh, you're not supposed to reveal this, you know, um, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna do it. And I think that brings relief to the reader. I do. Good. I, yeah, for me, it is. It's like, ah, somebody said it, you know, yes. like, and, and the thing too, is it's also very funny. Oftentimes, there's something absurd about the ways in which we talk to ourselves or the, the silly rituals we get into with respect to food and our appearance. I mean, it, it also comes with its dark sides too. I don't, don't get me wrong, but it's easy for me to see it as funny. <laughs> it is, it is funny. And I mean, the other thing too, is like, I also, I also, uh, I am not an enlightened person. I often write from a stance of, of anger and, pe and pettiness. And I, <laughs> and I, and as like a kind of amateur sociologist of like, of like uh, gendered experience, I was noticing something that was happening. Like when I was growing up, I remember girls and women were constantly talking about dieting and what they were not eating and not necessarily in my family. My family actually had pretty healthy, good relationships to food, but like, you know, people at school and like their, their, their mothers and their sisters and stuff. It was all about like admitting that you were dieting. And then I reached a point in like, I don't know, the mid two thousands when I was like, now the new thing is everyone's denying that they're dieting, but they're all dieting. Like everyone's like pretending that they eat all this pizza and they're <laughs> baking constantly. Like white women became obsessed with baking and just like trying to feed you carbs all the time, like constantly talking about carbs. And it's like, but you have no body fat. Right. You can't, you literally can't be eating all those carbs. But like then when you're hanging out, they're just gleefully eating pizza. And it's like, that doesn't seem. Yeah. And like, that's the new thing that women were doing. So I was like, I want to, I want to write about that. I want to write about this new way that like women are behaving in the world. Um, I want to talk with you about a couple of more things. Yes. One of which is estrangement, like mm -hmm. family estrangement, which is very much at the heart of Vivian's story in this book. And it brings up an interesting question or interesting questions about when that's advisable made made me think about that like wow like when is it when is it the right choice to cut off contact with your mm. nuclear family when does that like that kind of hard boundary and dramatic hard boundary need to be set because i think there are instances where it needs to be and then there's also like a more philosophical question that comes to mind about whether or not one can ever fully cut oneself off mm. from one's family Mm. Uh, those are those are two big questions that your book made me think about. I imagine they were on your mind too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as to the first question, again, it's probably an incredibly personal decision for people to make that I cannot dictate. I did I did some estrangement research, 
And something that I found very interesting, there's this book called uh, Family Estrangement by Kylie Aglias. And she's one of the only psychologists who writes about estrangement from a, from a not like pro uh, reunion uh, perspective. Like a lot of these people are writing books and it's like, you can tell that they really want you to reconcile. And Kylie Aglias is, I think she's a psychologist or sociologist or something. And she just interviewed people about why they estranged and is documenting the reasons in a kind of dispassionate way, but also in a way that's kind of more pro whatever decision anyone makes. So it's very allowing uh, that way. And something that she says in her book is that often what sparks the actual estrangement is something very small and very minor a small argument where someone does not feel heard. And it's usually like there are decades and years of problems in the relationship. But what actually sets off the cutoff is just this kind of like small moment that feels emblematic of, of the entire larger dynamic of the relationship. And I think in my book, she's just trying to talk to her mom about something. She's trying to express herself. She's trying to express a feeling. She's trying to say, I don't think I can come to home for Thanksgiving this year and her mother just explodes in a, in a loud uh, hysterical monologue that completely drowns out Vivian's voice and, and is yelling at her. And that's when Vivian is finally like, this is it. This is the entire relationship. I don't get to have any needs in this. Bye. Yeah, <laughs> I got to go. And, you know, bye. I got to go. And the same thing with her brother, right? Like, I don't get to have any needs in this. This whole relationship is all about you and all about your problems. And, and, you know, I, I was abused and I, you know, made a great life for myself. Do I get to have, do I get to have anything? Do I get to, do I get to have an opinion? Do I get to have a voice? Oh no, I just have to take care of you and listen to your problems all the time. And then you don't listen to me at all, literally. So it was a small, a smaller kind of moment that, uh, for what was like backed up by the by the literature, <laughs> yeah. you know, and but felt but felt true to life again. But like, true to, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, and I think every again, people make their own decisions about what they're going to do with their families, and I'm not going to comment on that. I think the the larger question about can you ever? That's such an interesting question. It's it's it's. I think about that. I think about that all the time. I mean literally know because of dna they are literally in you there's that moment where she sees her family in her face i mean they made you right they're always there right you know and and so and so and so no but estrangement has been great for me and it has actually been the only way that i can think about people in my family with loving kindness. Okay, because this is the next question that I have, and it has to do with the possibility of the coexistence of estrangement and forgiveness. I'm just mm. wondering like, how you feel about the interplay between those two things. Yeah, I mean, I've tended to think about the ideology of forgiveness when it comes to abuse as really being a strange kind of ideology. And it is a kind of, it's like we're expecting people to rise to some kind of spiritually higher plane in this specific moment of their life only. Because like it's, 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 it's interesting when we decide that there's a virtue that someone should be aspiring to, such as forgiveness, because we don't necessarily do that in every facet of life. Right. And like maybe I have another set of moral 
uh, and spiritual attributes that I think people should aspire to, such as loving their neighbor and being activists and and any of the other things that I believe, right, that I wish that I could impose upon people. So the forgiveness thing is always a little bit strange to me. And because I'm very suspicious of like the pro-family propaganda of our of our world and of our culture, I do tend to recoil a bit at that. But I do, what resonates for me is the idea of self-forgiveness. And I think when I think about forgiveness in terms of estrangement and in terms of like people who have survived this kind of abusive family structure, forgiveness to me is first, it is about self-forgiveness and forgiving yourself in this very kind of like, I don't know, like kind of like 12 step way of like almost like making amends with yourself for all of the ways that you have failed to live up to your ideals as a result of your abuse or or whatever forgiving yourself for estrangement forgiving yourself for failing whatever ideas you had about being a good person you know this idea that a good person sticks it out with people and maybe you feel bad because you estranged and maybe you should forgive yourself for that So self-forgiveness is probably what resonates. And I think more than forgiveness is the idea of loving kindness, which I kind of said. I think that that resonates more for me than forgiveness. With with respect to the with respect to one's abuse, you mean or with or with just with oneself? I mean, I mean, my particular situation is very specific and that I'm not thinking about my abuser at all. When I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about other family members that I don't speak to, that I wouldn't refer to as my abusers. Just, they're just family members. <laughs> but I, so in the estrangement context, I think loving kindness towards my family members is something that I have been able to achieve only through estrangement. And that makes me feel better on a day-to-day basis. It's not something that I'm prescribing as a goal for anyone else who estranges. I'm just saying that for myself, I could only experience loving kindness towards them when not being subject to them. And that makes sense. to the to the the chaos of of their lives and the behaviors that they will not take accountability for. Um, and now I can honestly say that I that I do that I do have that. That makes sense. You have to have some space. And that's great for me because I'm, you know, slightly less angry and resentful. Only slightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been through quite a lot and I think it's a remarkable like you said, you've made quite a nice life for yourself. Do you have a sense of how you did it? Like a lot of people who go through what you went through do not transcend maybe to the degree that you have, if that's a way of putting it. How did you do it? I mean, part of it is what we're saying about like my personality, which I do believe in. I think I do believe that some people are kind of good at survival. But that's survival is like the first part of it. You know, like I think like the struggle to live authentically is then like the next part, which can take a really long time. I mean, I think one thing that saved me, I think about this all the time, is school. And it actually breaks my heart to think about children not feeling safe at school because school for me for so long was the only place that I felt safe. It was a place where I I was totally free from from bodily harm 
And I was praised for my accomplishments, you know, and I received a lot of caregiving at school. And I excelled academically and that became a really big motivator for me and just a big source of my confidence, you know, and then the friendships that I made there and, and really just realizing that I could kind of supplement like maybe what I wasn't getting from my family, from these other, other people, you know, like I would, I was definitely the friend that like would always be at the other friend's house and like their family loved me, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, and I kind of, I remember strategizing to get into those relationships, you know, like I'm going to get this. And then it's like, Oh, their parents love me. Like, that's so great. Like I got them to love me, <laughs> you know? And, and like, even with like the class stuff, like I specifically remember being like, Oh, those people have money. Like they're going to help me get to college because, <laughs> because if you hang out with people who like want to go to college, like you're going to go to college. Like it's like, and, and these are things that were later born out when I would read like sociology and stuff and psychology of like uh, upper mobility, upward mobility and stuff. And those things would turn out to be true, right? Like that's why class mixing is so important. A rising tide lifts all boats, right? And yeah, so I would like plot to be friends with people that I thought could help me and that I wanted to be friends with. So like my savviness, but also just like just being very lucky to be around people who are good. You know, like childhood aside, where mistakes were made, for sure, I have been fantastically lucky in the people that have come into my life. You know, I mean, Tommy Pico, who was on your show, he like I tell him all the time, like my book wouldn't exist without him because why? Because he when I we both moved to New York together after college and met through mutual friends and he knew that I wanted to be a writer like he just he just knew I mean I came to New York to be an academic I was getting a PhD in in literature and I was going to study it and not write it he started a zine and a reading series and asked me to contribute to it and I started writing little fictional pieces little poems I wrote this just ridiculous a darkly funny poem about child abuse and everyone loved it and he, he created like a safe space for me to be playful and to be creative. And he loved my work and he was always so supportive of my work. And I started to believe like, oh, maybe I could, maybe I could actually do this. Like Tommy's doing it. Maybe I could do it, you know? And again, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Like I was very lucky to encounter someone who saw something in me who saw like the little like childlike part of me that wanted to be creative but wasn't allowing herself to be and he kept pushing me to do it and then I did it and when I did it he praised me and he loved it and everybody loved it and I felt like okay like maybe I can maybe I can do this and that's like the luck of encountering a precious person you know who loves you and, and believes in you and wants you to succeed I'm uh I'm happy to hear that. That's always like heartening to hear like writers, <laughs> writers like helping lift other writers. And I think about the, like the high quality of this debut. It's an extraordinary book, uh, especially for a debut. And it holds a lot of promise in it. And I feel like, like kind of like relieved and lucky. It's like, oh, well, thank God somebody nudged her because otherwise this book wouldn't be in the world. Uh, it's a wonderful book. 
And I wonder if you are working on another, like what, how do you, what's your second act? How do you follow this up? <laughs> oh man. Well, so far I'm following it up with procrastination and existential despair, <laughs> which I <laughs> Lovely. think is, I feel like that's normal, right? Yes. It's, yes. It's normal. Yeah. At least in my, in my household, it's very normal. So welcome to the party, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm not working right now. I quit my job. So I'm just like, I'm really free, free floating in this existential I, I mean I don't even know I'm, I'm trying to get to a point where I can start where I can start working again I mean I have ideas I, I know that I want to write about work and the workplace and group dynamics and organizational dysfunction what that's going to look like I have no idea you're writing about families that's your theme I think right well, but it's the workplace this time, right? <laughs> but, right. But it right, is. Right. But you know, like that's the thing about work. Like the workplace is very reminiscent of of the family because you are stuck with people, and so family dynamics definitely crop up in the workplace. And so, in a way, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> Just trying to. I'm armchair psyching me, as I <laughs> as I like to do, but I uh, I loved your book and I loved talking with you. Congratulations on it. And I will be very excited to read whatever you come up with next. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been it's been an absolute ple- pleasure. I told you before we started, and I told you via email that I've been listening to your podcast for like ten years. I, I, I listened to your podcast the entire time that I was writing my book, and like there are particular episodes that got me through through rough periods. <laughs> so, well, I'm I'm glad to hear so, that. Thank you, thank you so much for all the work that you've done, um, and congratulations on your beautiful book. All right, everybody, there we go. That is Chantal V. Johnson, author of the debut novel entitled Post Traumatic, available now from Little Brown. Chantal is not very online, but you can track her down on Twitter. She has a Twitter handle for what it's worth. It's at Chantal V. Johnson. I don't think she has a website. I couldn't find it. Maybe she does. But to her credit, she's not a very online person. Once again, the novel is called Post Traumatic, available now in hardcover and ebook, I believe, and audiobook, I would imagine. It's a great book. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is made available to listeners free of charge. It's a listener supported show, so if you like the program, if you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, sticker. You can get a book club subscription. I'll send you a postcard in the mail. I'll wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get your hands on my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, it is available now from Ig Publishing, wherever books are sold, trade paperback, ebook, and an audiobook edition, narrated by yours truly, is available from Highbridge Audio. So, what else? Oh, there's an app. Did you know that? The Other People podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app wherever you get your apps. 
This program is also on YouTube. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel, and the entire archive is there. So if you're a YouTube person, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. A great way to help the show, if you're in the mood, is to rate it and review it wherever you listen, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, whatever it is. Rate the show and review the show wherever you listen to the show. It helps other people find the show. All right? So, great talk this week with Chantal V. Johnson. I'll be back next week with another conversation. You know how this works, right?